Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome Kim Parnell, co-founder of Blank. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm not actually saying blank there as in I'm going to insert it later on. That is the name, <laughs> that's the name of the product. So let, let's jump into it. Let's let's talk about talk about blank and, and where it comes from, what problem it solves. Sure. So I'll start back, I guess, at the beginning. And I was trying to launch another app. So I had an app idea. I wanted to build the app and, and launch the business. Now, I'm not a developer by any means, but I think I'm pretty smart. You know, I went to school, well, for a little bit anyway, I went to school. I took science in university. I'm fairly intelligent. I think I can teach myself a lot of things. So I attempted to go down the path of learning how to code myself. That didn't last very long, only because I felt like in addition to actually developing the app, I would still have to build out the business. So I had to find users. I had to get the marketing down. I had to even figure out what the market was. So devoting all the time to building the app just didn't seem prudent to me at the time. So I looked around, I tried to possibly bring on a co-founder. I went through all the steps of doing that. I ended up in the end though, paying someone to build an app for me. I had some money that I was able to spend and I did get a little bit of investment from someone uh, that I had worked with on a different project. And I had someone build the app for me, both an iOS and Android app. And they were in no way trying to you know, try, trying to screw me over or anything like that. The app was built, it was fully functioning, but over the months that it took to build the app, it was about a six month process to get both iOS and Android versions. I had new ideas, I wanted new features, I wanted different things and, you know, I just I had a different vision by that point, but to, to try to remain a, a, a founder with a vision, I didn't necessarily change the scope of work on the developer. I tried to keep it keep it standard and keep it in line with what we had talked about previously so we could actually get something shipped. And that did help. I will say that that did allow us to get a, an app to market within six months. But at that time, I, I was just embarrassed to show it. I didn't even want to tell people that I had an app in the app store because you know it was just so different from what I wanted the app to be at that point. So moving forward, I wanted to make some changes and I realized that every single thing I did was going to cost more money and that was just money I did not have. So went back to looking for a co-founder and I went through a couple different people. Uh, you know, some was maybe just one meeting and there was someone I did try to work with for a little while and we just chose to go our separate ways. And then I landed on Paul, who is my current co-founder. And Paul had a product called Back.io. And Back.io is a back-end platform. So it automates all the back-end development of your app. I don't know how technical the audience is, but, you know, apps have a front-end and a back-end and the back-end stores all of your data, it's like your database. So that part is quite challenging to put together. Not everyone, you know, not, not a lot of developers are capable of doing both the front end and the back end. So that was a huge piece that it was going to be automated through his platform. So we first came together to work on my app idea that I had using his platform, Back.io. And after I'd say about four months of working together on, on what was my idea, I, I went to bed one day and I woke up thinking, this is wrong. <laughs> we are doing this wrong. My app might be a great idea, but this problem that you're able to solve for me, we can solve that for everybody. You know, I'm not the only one in the position of wanting to launch an app and I don't know how to code and I don't know how to do the technical side of it. So 
rather than just solve this, you know, go after this one vertical, let's look at how we can use this platform to help a lot of people in my position. So we started off with Back.io as the product and Back.io was kind of a developer tool because you still had to know some JavaScript, you had to know how to code, you had to be able to build the front end. So whether you did that yourself or whether you hired someone, you still had to build that piece. And through just conversations that founders have, we hypothesized that we might be able to automate the entire process of the app development. And we've spent the last year and a bit figuring out how we are going to do that. And now that's where we're at now. So we figured out that we are going to be able to automate the process. We know how to do the, how to automate the entire app development process. And we have, you know, rebranded, I guess, as blank. And that is the product that we have now. Because I've been through this actually as well, where you get development done and, and you're almost, you're almost apologetically asking for changes to the app where, Correct, you, yes. you know, something will happen. And, and it's like, and sometimes you have it with designers as well and you're, you're kind of skulking into the room and you're like, you're paying top dollar for this. <laughs> and they're going to go and they're kind of going, oh, here we go with scope creep. And you're kind of going, no, like this is, that is what innovation is. It's fluid and it changes and things change and the market changes. And six months is a long time for it to come to market as well. So you're really solving a very commonplace problem. Well, thank you. And and you're you're right in saying that even though you might be paying for it, you do feel like you're asking for the world when you ask for a change. And being a naive, well, a person naive to the actual development process, you think a change might just be, you know, small. You say, oh, just move this thing here or just make it go to the screen instead of this screen. Now I have a lot more knowledge in that space. I understand code much, much more now. And I realize why they <laughs> grumble and groan so much because it isn't just, you know, like moving a button. On, yeah. on the surface, there's a lot that goes behind that. So, you know, it does become this weird, frustrating process where you, for the betterment of your product and for what you think might be the best version of your app for your customers, you're kind of torn between putting out something that you think is great and actually having the funds to be able to do that and get all those changes made. And and when you are starting a company or when you're building an app, you think about it all day, every day. You know, there wasn't a night I went to bed that I wasn't thinking about what I was going to be working on the next day. And when you're focusing on your product and your problem that incessantly, it's inevitable that you're going to have changes that you want made even after a couple of weeks, let alone six months. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about your situation and how bad you found it, right? But think about this, because I worked as a chief digital officer, essentially, and you have more than one stakeholder. So you have the entire organization and everybody's thrown into their 10 cents of their digital dime of this is what I think and this is what I think and and then somebody will kind of go no I'm putting my foot down I want this in the app and then you have to go back to the developers <laughs> against your better judgment and actually you know they may have planned out a whole user journey user experience and then this one change just changes the entire process exactly yes so mm-hmm. it, it does it really solves a, a much bigger problem but th- that's your product you do a, a really great job of getting the story out there about about blank and thank you but you do it in a very different way so you're not going out telling everybody about blank you have different hobbies and you're, you're you know you're a polymath and that you have lots of different interests and you're using your influence in that world and it's almost like the last thing you find out is oh yeah and she's co-founder of of this great product and i'd love to talk about that a bit because i i see that as a way more powerful way of advertising it than going out and advertising it. 
Well, thank you. And yes, it is quite different. And to me, it's very clear. Like the path and how we are going about spreading the word of blank is is crystal clear. But I will say that oftentimes, even people that know me well, they're very confused <laughs> by what I'm doing or they'll say, oh, you're doing this, you know, you're doing an interview show. How does that work? Or, or they think they're completely separate. But the way that we look at it is we have a platform that allows people to build apps. That could mean you build an app for your friends. It could mean you build an app for your church. But more than likely, at least in the beginning, it's going to cater to startup founders or to entrepreneurs. So we have a platform that serves entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs to know about us. And not only that, building an app is only a tiny, tiny fraction of building a successful business. So if we have all these people that use blank and build an app, but then all fall flat on their face because they have no other business skills or have no mentors or nowhere they've looked for advice, they have no idea how to market a product or how to attract users, then how good is our platform really going to be? You know, we're not going to get very far. So we just look at it in a different way where if we can support entrepreneurs throughout their entire journey and not necessarily in a one-on-one -on -one capacity, but provide all kinds of different avenues for them to learn things and to connect with each other and to maybe even find mentors or, you know, get advice from people that have been there, done that, then not only is that going to better the entrepreneurial community as a whole, but it can only make our platform more successful because if entrepreneurs succeed, we succeed. So I, I see it as a very aligned type of marketing strategy. And yeah. there's been, you know, there's been meant, there's been quite a few successful companies that have done this. I won't say there's a lot, but there, there's been enough that I think it's been proven to work. Yeah. So, so they're basically they're they are their marketing or they are their advertising, doing things like influencer marketing, etc. That's the exactly. basic premise. And and could you give us some examples? Because I I agree with you massively that people don't get it. So they're looking at you and they're kind of going. That's totally different because people always see through the same lens that business was always done. And they're like, oh, well, you should have an ad in the paper or you should be doing digital advertising that nobody looks at. But that doesn't work anymore because people don't trust that. And what you seem to be doing is building trust and relationships through authenticity. Well, I'm glad that you can see what we're doing because that is exactly right. And again, I don't know if I when I set out to do these things, it wasn't. I don't want to say it was so structured in the thinking. It, it was more, it really just felt right. It felt like that's what we needed to be doing. But through the different feedback I was getting where people were highly confused, I looked at it a little more seriously. And uh, my business partner is not on social media as much. He's he's stays away from that world a little bit. So it did, I did also, you know, I wanted to explain it to him because it did seem a little scattered. So I wanted to be able to understand really why I felt the need to do that. So I had to break it down for myself. And when I think about it, I think that our generation is very different from our parents in when it comes to marketing and advertising. So my parents' generation anyway, I'm, I guess, a millennial is what I'm referred to as. My parents' generation, they trusted authorities. So authorities could come in and say, you know, this is what you should be eating or these are the statistics and therefore we should do this. And that was very trusted. Almost to the fault of if you didn't have a couple letters after your name, or if you weren't on some board or part of some association, nobody wanted to trust you, right? That, that was like scary to go down the path of, it was almost hippie-ish to, to trust or to 
be partnered with someone that wasn't accredited or didn't come out of some prestigious university. Whereas now, my generation millennials are the exact opposite. And I really feel that that has to do a lot with reality TV. So when I, when I use this argument, some people, you know, they start rolling their eyes. But reality TV, whether, you know, we'll just pretend it's actually real, you know, pretend it's not so <laughs> fake. But, you know, reality TV allowed everyday people to feel like they gained access behind the curtain. They felt like they got to know people or they saw what happened when the, when the cameras weren't rolling on a scripted show. You know, it was, it was a lot more authentic, again, pretending it is, you know, a lot more authentic. And they got to see people's real personalities. So all of a sudden in other areas, when that wasn't present, that's when we get weirded out as millennials. You know, when something seems really scripted or really rehearsed or it's like a presentation, we get weird. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you acting weird? Why aren't you just being normal right now? We'd rather see someone fall on their face and, you know, you know, screw up completely and then say, sorry, guys, I screwed up. Then see something happen perfectly because it's relatable. And we're so used to that now with social media and reality TV and getting this window into people's lives as much as they let us in that, you know, not doing that seems, seems very inauthentic and like you cannot trust it at all. I saw as well, you do a lot of mentorship for younger people. I do. Yeah. So I work with a couple groups here in Toronto, um, a couple entrepreneurship courses, I guess, people, people in second careers. So we have some programs here that are funding to help people change paths or if they get laid off or whatnot. So all kinds of different things in that avenue. And then I do some on the side as well, just a little more one-on-one type things. And it's very interesting because I feel the authentic marketing or being able to just really be yourself and put yourself out there. People are starting to know this is good and they're starting to agree that this might help their business, but it seems like a good idea for other people. (laughs) So, you know, they might say, oh, I, I know that I need to do more on social media or I know I have to have a better online presence and I see other people doing it. But then when you actually ask them to do it or when they talk about what they're doing, the words that they start saying or the things that they're explaining that they're going to work on are back to the, you know, it's, it's so rehearsed. It's so contrived. It's so fake. Truthfully, I tell them it's very fake. So you're agreeing that you know what works yet. You are still really scared to do that yourself. And it is scary. I'm not going to lie. It's, it is scary. It's, and it's not for everybody, but if that is something that you're wanting to do, it's, I, I would just encourage people to start going for it because it's less scary once you start. Yeah, but I reckon there's another thing going on as well because I mentioned at the start about you being you having very interest, varying interests, and being a polymath. Therefore, you you are going to be interesting, and therefore you can actually have a, a conversation like we're having and not have to rehearse it or go. It's not as you say scripted because that just comes across every single time you know, you just made me think of something and it's something that I talk to people a lot about. And it's something I struggled with myself years ago is that again, going back to this being authentic or being very authoritarian, a lot of people will have the view that they have to be perceived a certain way, whether that's online or on social media, or even when they're out in public at some sort of business or networking event, that they're really only allowed or they only really should express certain parts of their personality. 
And while I, you know, there's a couple little asterisks in here because I think on social media, it should be clear what you do. You know, if you, if you have a Instagram page and you're, you are looking to be the face of your company, it shouldn't be so varied that people can't understand, you know, kind of what you're in or what you're doing by spending a few seconds on there. But that being said, I often think people take that way too far. So part of being a person is having interests and having hobbies and having things that you like to talk about. So if that means that you are a chiropractor, but you also really love jazz music, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, it makes you probably get more clients as a chiropractor. But people just have this idea that they can't even talk about these things or how that, you know, they're going down to the jazz festival in New Orleans because it's not professional or it doesn't show who I am as a chiropractor. But they're forgetting that people don't want a chiropractor. They want a real person that just happens to be a really good chiropractor. Yeah, and as as you said, the next wave or the millennials or whatever you want to call the the younger generation, like that's what you want. And like you reminded me of something there that you said about the doctors and having the letters behind your name and therefore had trust in the past. But, But like what you're doing is in a way creating digital breadcrumbs in in the, this is who I am and then people will verify you and find you everywhere and then they kind of go oh yeah I can buy from this person because they're real and they're trustworthy it's a different it, it's that shift isn't it that's happened I agree yeah and I do that I mean I feel like a lot of people do that you know look someone up online and you know if all they have is their LinkedIn profile that they made themselves you know you can kind of, I guess, take it with a grain of salt and think this is who they are. But if there's things everywhere from their own created content to other people, you know, someone else does an interview with them or they happen to be a guest on a podcast like we're doing right now, then, you know, you could, maybe you could fake that if you, <laughs> you're a psychopath, <laughs> but you know, yeah. so to just be yourself and the people that like you will be attracted to you and the people that don't really care for you, well, that's okay. Kim, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And the product is Blank. Where where can people find out more about Blank on social and the website? Yeah, for sure. So our website is getblank.com. And that's G-E-T-B-L-A-N-K, getblank.com. And as you made the joke in the beginning, we we hear that a lot. And obviously, we knew going into it what the word blank actually means. So we intend to come up with some creative puns for that. We have a couple that are maybe just too corny to use right now, but <laughs> I'm sure it will be used. But the idea is you start with a blank screen. You know, the app is very customizable. Some people may have had experience with trying to use a template or something before. It's not like that at all. So you are able to customize your own app. You start with the blank screen, the blank slate, however you want to call it. And that's getblank.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter at getblank. And myself, you can find me. If you have any trouble finding blank, you can always go through mine. And I'm Kim Big K. So K-I-M-B-I-G-K. And that's on Instagram and Twitter. The same. And last but not least, we are doing a lot of YouTube content. So I have a couple things up on my personal channel, which is The Grind with Kim Parnell, like Startup Grind, you know, The Grind with Kim Parnell. Nice. And we have a new show coming out that's going to be launching in August. It is called The Business Behind. So that show is actually an idea I've had for quite a while. And now that we're doing a lot of content stuff, I've you know had the ability to do it. And the reason for that show is I was in entertainment for a brief stint. So I did some TV hosting. I was you know I did a lot of acting. I danced my whole life. So I've encountered a lot of people in that world and in that you know in those professions 
that are very well recognized for their accomplishments and for their talent. But because I've had more personal conversations with them or just, you know, times when they're not being recorded, it's very interesting to hear that the way they talk is very similar to how a startup founder would talk or anyone that is building a business, like they're building the business of themselves. So just uh, bringing on some people like that, I mean, not necessarily all famous actors, but anyone from, you know, entertainment, people in even music production, authors, chefs, people that run charities, you know, people that are directors of nonprofits, just people who you don't look at them and instantly write down entrepreneur. Yeah. But yeah, but they, you know, they do use all of those strategies and tactics. So that's what we'll be doing on, it's called the business behind that's business behind show on Instagram. And we have the, the YouTube will be coming out in August. We've already filmed four episodes. So we have awesome. a couple more filmed at the end of the month. Yeah. That's great. Cause you're re you're really connecting the dots of all your experiences together and bringing them all together. And I think that came as what people don't guess. They, they see that as random because they don't see what you see. So you see it as all connected, but so many totally. people don't. It's funny because, you know, I, as I said, I did, I did quite a bit of acting. And when I transitioned into entrepreneurship and tech and having my own startup, there are a lot of people that have known me that almost look at you with that kind of sad eyes. And, you know, they sigh and they say, you know, are you, are you upset that the acting thing didn't work out? Are you sad? So you gave up on acting. And this is how they'll phrase it. And to me, it's, it's very interesting because one, I'm not dead. So if I want to act in my 50s, and then I can. And if I have a very successful tech company, that's a lot easier to do if I can just fund my own movies. Yeah. However, you know, nothing, that's definitely what's going to happen. But the, the very interesting thing is I have always been comfortable on a stage because I came from doing musical theater and I, you know, I've been in front of the camera a lot. So I've gotten a couple speaking gigs that just kind of came, I think, because they were like, there's a female that owns a tech company. Let's put her on stage. <laughs> but after I did that, it, you know, they just kind of started flying in. Like people started con contacting me and, the, you know, the request to speak started flying in. And the funny thing is, you know, there's not too many people in the tech world that have a history of hosting a TV show or being on stage for half of their life. Yeah. So, you know, you know, that very, that was, that was a huge help in all of those endeavors. So it was so easy for me to make that transition to speaking about what I do. It, it was, you know, it doesn't take me much, I don't say it doesn't take me much effort, but I'm not nervous about it. It wasn't something that I had to, you know, learn how to do or say, okay, now I'm going to really get over this fear. It was just something that I had developed as a skill with all these other quote unquote failures. Yeah. But like, I get, I get that totally. Cause you said it earlier on within the mentorship and like the idea is such a small part of it really in the bigger picture. And you know, you, you talk about body language and health and fitness and, and all those kind of things, but the skill to be able to communicate and to present yourself well, or, and to articulate maybe a, a difficult to articulate idea is so essential, but so many founders lack that. Yes, it is true. I mean, I don't, there's not any specific people I would say, but mm. I would say that as a whole, especially in the tech community, though it is changing a little, you know, it's, it's not the first place people think of when they think of public speakers or, yeah. or even like great presenters, you know, it's, that's much more on the advertising marketing side of 
you know, that entire industry. So it, it's, it's very unique. It's a unique, I guess, combination of skills that seemed very random or very sporadic or all over the place. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in my family that were rolling their eyes thinking, okay, here we go again, something different. So, mm. okay, wow. Now we're changing lanes all over again. And me, you know, I, I don't know if I saw how they were all going to connect maybe five or 10 or, you know, 15 years ago, but now I look at it and I see very clearly these, all of these things had to happen. Yeah. You know, all of these stages in my life had to happen because otherwise I would never be able to be where I'm at right now. Yeah. No, it's why I had you on the show, Kim. I like the product was part of it, but I saw that unique and, and as Steve Jobs said, you can only ever connect the dots looking backwards. You don't know how they're going to connect, but you have to actually collect them first to be able to connect them. And you've done that really, really well. Thank you. Well, Kim, it's, it's been a pleasure and, and I'm sure you're going to go from success to success and we wish you the very best. Kim Parnell, co-founder of blank, getblank.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Nico Bouchard, CEO and founder of Sex Positive. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Aiden. It's great to have you here, and I'm sure the name will spike up people's ears and make them wonder what it's about. Before we go there, before we talk about the company, let's talk about you and your pathway to the company. My jumping into this startup come, came after when I was working as a teacher for the last uh, eight years. I was teaching uh, mechanical engineering, uh, essentially like after school classes as well, teaching kids how to build robots and battle bots out of Legos and program their own simple machines. I had been doing that for a while. I'd worked my way up. I was working at an alt school in San Francisco. Simultaneously, like five years ago, I got interested in the, the do-it-yourself biology scene, the biohackers in the bay, as they're called. And had set up my own little laboratory in my in my attic in my room, literally sleeping next to my my bench. But I did a whole range of projects. I started with uh, you know just modifying bacteria and yeast to change color because I mean as a teacher, but also like an artist, I was like into into productions for a long time as well before I was a teacher. And as as I was moving along through my projects, I just got more into it, more into collaborating with PhDs to design new gene cassettes which all and then you know integrate those into organisms whether bacteria yeast or, or plants and throughout the entire process you have to do a, a, something called PCR polymerase chain reaction or polymerase chain reaction um, which is essentially just copying DNA um, making millions of copies of it and then testing that what specifically you're looking for um, is present um, in, in your reaction. Um, so at the end of 2016, uh, I was doing or organizing a bio art show in San Francisco and uh, working simultaneously on a project to make a, a hypoallergenic peanut plant. And I was testing uh, the expression of this one construct we were working with that was going to cut out um, one of the regions uh, that's responsible for anaphylactic shock in people who have peanut allergies. Uh, and... Uh, you know, while while doing that, I was like, you know, this is this is interesting. I can uh, identify uh, protein coding regions in DNA, but you know, I, I also had quite a few friends who, around the same time, said, "Hey, I'm feeling this burn when I go to the bathroom after this one Tinder date. Uh, <laughs> like, you're a mad scientist. Like, can can you come up with something?" I'm like, you know, you know, it should actually there should be something that's easier. Um, so that, that was kind of going on in the back of my head. 
And a friend of mine, actually, I was complaining about how long it was taking me to do the reaction. So he sent me, a, like, well, as, as PhDs do, 20 papers describing one type of reaction called isothermal PCR, which uh, rather than having to go through multiple iterations of different oscillating temperatures to detect or to amplify the DNA, rather, um, it works at one temperature. It's incredibly stable and, and highly efficient or selective in that sense. So I read into it and then approached one of my mentors and lab partners and said, like, hey, look, let's let's make it an at-home kit. I've already ordered primers. I've tested a couple of my friends. They got tested. Then they went to a clinic and they had, like, the same results. So let's try to make a an at-home tool that, you know, is one step, doesn't require like all of the different iterative steps, doesn't require having to like take a week to make an appointment with a doctor and then the week it takes to get results, like we can just do this so so readily. So like why not? Brilliant. So so just to, to kind of recap, you were a teacher for eight years. You were always kind of differently minded in that you were trying out different things, teaching the kids differently, etc. And you were curious and this started off as a hobby where you started yeah. messing with things in your mad lab your mad scientist lab upstairs <laughs> yeah pretty much cool and then then you came across problems and you decided to go after this one problem which ju- just to, to clarify it's it's sexually transmitted diseases yeah yeah well it's actually specifically sexually transmitted infections so okay. uh our, our targets are chlamydia and gonorrhea for the time being. So you can identify the shape of those, essentially. So to put it in layman terms, you can identify the shapes and the proteins that are produced to make those potent, those infections potent. Yes and no. It's actually like a, every organism kind of has its own barcode in its DNA for what it is. And we're essentially scanning that barcode and identifying it on a, a molecular level rather than like a structural one. Excellent. Okay, so it got you. So the way, the way f- food or clothing or whatever has a barcode to identify it on Amazon, for example, you're doing that with different STIs. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And then, and then you almost the same in the same breath, then you have an antidote for each of those, essentially. Well, not quite an antidote. The antidote is still. Uh, you need to get an antibiotic, but uh, we're, we're testing specifically for diseases that uh, that have treatments available that are quite simple. Okay, so so you identify basically how severe it is, etc. Somebody yeah. then uses a home kit to to uncover what what they have, essentially what infection they have, and then you give them the easy steps to to deal with it. Yeah. And to be able to deal with it at home and uh, what we're developing gives results in 30 minutes rather than like having to wait to, to take a week. So we're, what, our, what our little bit of hardware does is like it makes it easier to perform anywhere. So it could be at home, it could be at a clinic, um, even in like a remote setting, like say you're like in sub-Saharan Africa, it has applicable va- like massive applicable value there. Um, but it's also uh, like taking away so much of the shame element because in in some of our our research we realized that in even the developed world nearly half of the population 46 percent doesn't get tested because they don't trust doctors they're afraid of doctors or they're afraid of that question of how many partners have you had and that either brings on shame or embarrassment or what have you Um, so it's a lot of what we're doing is actually to help remove the stigma and let people test themselves like within their own 
the comforts of their own home there, you know. And, and, a, and a huge saving of cost, I presume, as well, because yeah. obviously the cost, um, some people may be not insured, etc., etc. It's it's kind of reminds me just of the pregnancy test, the home pregnancy test. Yeah, that's exactly the model we're following. We want to make it, you know, it's the first test we'll come out with is probably going to be around like $40, which is, you know, not the pregnancy test, but still, if you're not covered by insurance, you're paying anywhere between $50 and $150, $250 US. Um, you know, in Europe, things are uh, a little bit better. You guys can get free tests, but uh, in the States, there aren't those options. So we're trying to make it so, you know, the people who can't necessarily afford to get a test in a clinic have an alternative and like remarkably statistically those people are the ones who don't want to get tested because they're afraid of breaches of con parent or uh, uh, doctor patient confidentiality a clinic that's nearby has been shut down because of you know, defunding um, so we're, we're really trying to fit that niche yeah so, t so tell us then so, so that's the product but tell us about your path to the product so when you you were the mad scientist upstairs when you were teaching how, how did you get out of the, the lab into into actually building the company um, and how did you get to land in Rebel Bio and Cork? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess I'll start with like the, the story of how, how we got to Rebel Bio. So, um, you know, while coming up with the idea, um, the, the first iteration of the product was going to be a, you know, you swab yourself, you do a couple reactions, like two. Like in the lab, you have up to five different reactions you have to do to get your final result. Um, so we wanted to break it down to two, but that's still, um, we kind of felt as like a user experience was a little bit too, uh, too difficult, like the, or not difficult, but the idea of mixing solutions when you don't really know what's going on, um, is even scary for hobby scientists. Um, so at that point when we're like, okay, we, we know we can, we can do this at least in a reaction sense. And uh, I'd built a little Arduino sensor so we could uh, test like the, the color change um, because we'd add different color dyes that would kind of show what would happen in the reaction. So we'd have like a little test tube, it would change colors, and then I had some a basic Arduino setup to like show, uh, shine the light through the solution and then picked up um, kind of what the color change was there. Um, that was the original thing. And then uh, I knew some people at, uh, at Rebel Bio um, they'd, they'd reached out to me before for a couple ideas while I was just kind of like, Hey, I have these crazy ideas I can use science for, uh, let's try to solve them. And they, they had the first years they're like, yeah, you need to, um, to understand the science, the regulation, the business aspect. Um, so I came to them this year I said, here's the science, here's the step-by-step, -step, here's the regulatory pathway. Um, here's a business model based off of the pregnancy test, the at-home colorectal cancer test, the at-home HIV test, um, and showed that, you know, even though being like a, a hobby garage scientist, um, I had a plan in place. Um, so a lot, a lot of it was just like, you know, in, in San Francisco and in, in Silicon Valley, everyone very much wanted to make sure that you had a PhD or at least a master's. And at Rebel Bio, they're very much open to, if you know what you're talking about, you can prove you know what you're talking about. And then they have their team that does their due diligence. Like it's open to anybody, whether they're traditionally trained or, or self-taught. So you're part of the Rebel Bio lab, which is run by Bill Liao. Where are you in the process? Because is it a three month or a six month? How, how does it work from, from a startup perspective? Yeah, so it's a, a four-month program. Uh, the first month is uh, essentially a business crash course. So they 
they, they talk about it as being an, uh, an MBA in a month and like they dive, they just throw you into some really deep waters that covers everything from forming a company, setting up bank accounts, write patents, have your IP protected, structure your company, understand the complexities of diluted shares, understand shares and options and all of the things that most scientists don't think about or don't want to think about but are absolutely quintessential to being an entrepreneur. So that's the, the first month is all about like turning scientists into at least understanding some of the business aspects and uh, then providing a massive network of people to talk to for additional clarifi- clarifying questions. Okay. Um, and then month two, we get access to the lab. And so from month two to four, um, we have our science teams um, in the lab at least like you know, five to eight hours a day working on, on developing what the tech is. Um, and there's 15 different companies here this year ranging from diagnostics like us. There's a diagnostics for Red Tide. Uh, there's Ken Wavo that you had on doing uh, nanoparticle deliverables of cannabinoids. There's cancer diagnostics, cancer detection probes. They have uh, wastewater treatment, a full spectrum of, of biotech, not just like the traditional engineer proteins for the specific purpose, but use life in a way that solves a, a common idea that could help the betterment of humanity. It's brilliant. And, and, and having everybody together in an incubator like that means that you're like, like what was happening to you when you were outside and people were coming to you for ideas. But when you're there and you're in this melting pot of just innovation and everybody's thinking in a certain way and people are coming up with with great you know discoveries and then they share it that's what i love about the incubator at model yeah it's it's incredible and to i mean bill will will say this a million times but it's it's not so much an incubator it's a full-on accelerator where like we're like non-stop having to hustle and grind and every time we make like a new discovery or have a new idea or a new direction for the company it's like okay let's make it happen tomorrow and you have to keep on leveling up yourself in what your like your work output is so that like they're they're getting us ready for you know contending with some of the big companies that are are now starting to uh to be disrupted by little startups like ours but yeah but on top of that like uh like even being in the accelerator, sure we get to sh- to share ideas, but we're also making like massive business contacts because um, we all come from diverse backgrounds, have other previous lives, um, and we're able to con- help connect each other. Like this morning, um, through one of the teams here, I was connected to distribution partners in India. Uh, a month ago, I I found some top tier regulatory counsel. Um, who did the, the full oversight process for the rapid HIV test and contacted them and they're, they're interested in helping us design our trials. So like through, through the connections here, like there's an immense network, like the, the, the program itself has a, a, a massive amount of sponsorship and, and a huge network itself. But then everybody that comes to the table has their interesting uh, background as well. And it just, it, it, it makes for an amazing uh, pool of people you can get in contact with. Yeah, and I'm sure like the likes of Bill Liao and SOSV, they're bringing visitors the whole time. So they're bringing interested people the whole time and they're getting their eyes open because I think it's the biotech world, the world you're, you're living in, is one that not everybody's really aware of. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. You know, we're, we're very much at one of those... Uh, 
like the precipice of a new age where like you know i'm i'm 25 so i've grown up around computers and the idea of like being able to to program silicon is like you know it's, it's like a no-brainer i've been you know growing up and developing slower than the innovation in tech but biotech being able to program life it's it's like being able to program like a new entire reality where we're, we're starting to understand how to control nature it's it's really bizarre but really cool to be a part of absolutely well we wish you the best luck so so what's the next step for you nico obviously four months is a really short period of time is there an opportunity for investment can people get in touch with you etc yeah, yeah. Um, so where we're at right now, we're um, we've just started to file our uh, our provisional patents, and we are um, about two months away from having a prototype. Uh, and I, I didn't quite explain what that is, but um, specifically when it comes to uh, infectious diseases or sexually transmitted infections, it works in in still two steps. People swab themselves and put that into a, a buffer solution, and what we've created is a, a pen that will extract that solution. Or it brings it up like a syringe uh, with a simple click of a button. It does the entire reaction, PCR reaction inside the housing, and then uh, quali- or qualitatively ana- analyzes that and gives uh, a simple plus or minus for the detection of that specific uh, infectious agent. So yeah, it's essentially a pen. Um, and we're going to have our prototype in the next two months. We have a partnership set up with Dublin City University. Um, they're going to take what's been our kind of brutish looking prototype and turn it into a fully scalable CE compliant prototype that we'll then be able to use for our, our clinical trial our clinical trials which will take about a year for starting in January of 2018. If people want to get a hold of us we have a, a running website to get access to our, our newsletter it's uh, and then also you know get our updates our blogs it's www.sex-positive.net. We're actually currently rebranding because you know, the, the scope of our devices is much more we can detect essentially any infectious disease so long as we know its genome profile or, or can find that specific barcode that we were speaking about earlier. So we're, we're changing our name from sex positive to macrofluidics uh, biotechnologies. We're not microfluidics. There's a lot of problems that come with it. But we use just bigger channels for larger samples, but, you know, nothing more than like a milliliter in volume. Um, so we thought the name was appropriate. <laughs> Okay, man. Brilliant. Okay, well, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Nico Bouchard, CEO and founder of Sex Positive and Macrofluidics Biotechnology. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.